The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hi, Lucy. Welcome to Can't Make This Up. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. Very glad to have you. Um, I'm very excited to talk about your uh, new book, but before, uh, before we get there, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Well, I, um, I'm a journalist originally by training, started on a local paper in a city called Bradford and did lots of coverage of fires and murders and plane crashes and all that kind of stuff. And then I moved to uh, eventually to national newspapers and I worked for a um, British paper called The Guardian and I covered uh, politics. This is some while ago. So it was um, during the period when Tony Blair was prime minister here. And I also covered, and I covered education and social affairs as well. Um, and then I had a brief period living in Moscow for a couple of years with my family to do with my partner's job. Uh, and when I came back from there, um, I spent some time working at the University of Cambridge, which is quite near where I live. Uh, and I worked in communications there. Uh, and that kind of was part of what gave me an enthusiasm for communicating science stories in particular. Mm -hmm. I found that fascinating and it prompted, it wasn't the original trigger for getting interested in this story, but it helped prompt me to write the book. Um, one thing I've noticed with my podcast, I didn't intend to do this, but I also seem to have a very interest in the intersection between science and history. Uh, you know, I love knowing how we came to understand the things that we do um, about science. So your book is um, uh, really timely. It deals with viruses, <laughs> vaccines, and it deals with Russia. Um, and yeah. I'm sure <laughs> But <laughs> no, I just actually do see into the future. <laughs> so, you know, I know I'm starting to feel like Nostradamus or something. Um, you know, people are starting to ask me for, you know, bets on horse races and things. No, it's absolutely obviously coincidental. There is a tiny bit of um, kind of forecasting, if you like. I, so to go back, I came across the story from this for this book almost 10 years ago, so way before everything that's happening now. Yeah. Um, and that was through a chance meeting in a school playground. I'd moved back from Russia. My kids were all going to new schools and I met uh, another mom in the playground when I was picking up my son. And, um, and I explained that we'd moved back and that's why he was starting school. And she said, oh, my family has a Russian connection. And I thought she would say, you know, they're Russian. And she said, actually, my great, 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 great multiple times grandfather inoculated Catherine the Great against smallpox. I was like, what? <laughs> and I kind of pinned her against the wall while the kids just played around um, and caused mayhem and just made her tell me this story. Uh, and that is the story that I pursued and just got fascinated with. But it took me, you know, kind of eight years to actually end up writing it and with the help of her family and but yeah, so to spin forward, when I finally pitched that, it was 2019. 
her family had incredibly kindly said they would pass on the family papers, which included kind of correspondence between their ancestor, that's a Dr. Thomas Dinsdale and Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia. Extraordinary stuff, his medical notes about her, his- um, The family of, had all this. Yeah, they did. Wow. I mean, so they'd kind of shown it to the odd academic previously. And, you know, some of it's known and, and you know, there are copies of bits of it in the Royal College of Physicians in London. And, but no one had ever brought the whole story together. Um, I think possibly because it maybe falls between the kind of medical history story and the Russian history story. And in any biography of Catherine the Great, she had a really long reign, pretty long life. And she is such a kind of extraordinary pyrotechnical, just um, complex character with so much to say about her, even before she, I mean, before she even gets to Russia, never mind, before she becomes empress. And then there's kind of so much on domestic reform, so much on foreign policy, so much just on her as a person. So in this kind of incredible, um, you know, dramatic character, the, the, this one episode has kind of got lost. You do find it um, retold in bio the good biographies of her, but it can't possibly be given its due, or I didn't think it could. Um, so uh, yeah, they, the family has this extraordinary amount of, of documentation. I mean, you know, they have letters that she wrote in her handwriting in French to him. Um, they have his medical notes about her once he'd inoculated her against smallpox, we'll come onto it. Um, you know, and they even have, you know, when you go to, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but if you go to the doctor here, sometimes you might have a, um, you know, a kind of medical questionnaire and it might be like, how many units of alcohol do you, um, you know, do you drink a week and what's your diet like and how much exercise and, you know, and everybody lies about the alcohol thing. And <laughs> that's just the UK, <laughs> just is the UK. And, you know, and, and he gave her that same kind of thing and there's her notes in French and it's like what you know um what is my diet like um what kind of exercise do I have you know what is my digestion like and she's jotted down these questions as he's presented them to her and then she answers them underneath it's just absolutely wow. remarkable you know the intimacy of that and so to be able to use these documents was was really incredible I have to say though it's not like I had them in my little sticky paw and I was looking at them um they're, they're all obviously carefully stored away by the family. And although I think in normal times, I would have been able to go and see them for sure. I managed to pitch this book uh, in kind of November 2019. Remember back then when the world was different. And, <laughs> I remember that. Uh, and I, <laughs> and I, I did that. So the reason I was saying there was maybe some level of kind of journalistic forecasting was just that I was interested in this story in the context of the kind of people's views on vaccination of anti-vax um, sentiment or vaccine skepticism. Um, I just thought that there was this interesting way of looking at people's understanding of risk um, their relationship with science and so on. And I thought that that was going to be a kind of current story. So to that extent, there was some level of, okay, I think this has got a kind of news angle, but then obviously COVID happened. Um, my book was kind of put out to publishers in the teeth of all the eye of that storm. And I just literally signed the contract as Britain went into lockdown in kind of end of March, beginning of April, 2020. So as you can imagine, I could, all the archive doors just 
clang shut and the libraries and I couldn't go and even see this family who'd so generously said they'd give me their ancestors details that was the end of that so I, everything was done through you know as sort of online archives and so on and just talking to the family and so they actually gave me what they described as a kind of WikiLeaks dump of just hundreds of 18th century handwritten papers all photographed so I just had to sit there and just kind of it's, transcribe it's until my eyes went square <laughs> gotta suffer <laughs> gotta suffer for this stuff no it's great it's fascinating in some ways you know it gives you it's just immersion you know you, you suddenly you're there and, and there was nothing else to do I mean I, we had an hour of exercise a day just try and write the book around your children and your dogs and your family <laughs> yeah definitely some challenges in, in putting this together but I, you know I'm sure being in the midst of a pandemic yourself there's a certain amount of resonance with the material that you're looking at that's, uh, you know, a couple hundred years old. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without question. I mean, in the most kind of obvious sense, I think that there's just a kind of um, misunderstanding or a narrow understanding of the history of vaccination itself. Mm -hmm. um, in, certainly in the UK, you know, we people are taught about Jenna, Edward Jenner at school. And we tend to kind of think, oh yeah, vaccination, it's all about Jenner. Now, Edward Jenner is an absolutely critical figure. I'm not remotely undermining his role. It's, it's extraordinary, but there is, he kind of stood on the shoulders of quite a lot of, if not quite giants and really tall people, you know, some really important uh, previous kind of scientists, although they wouldn't have called themselves that natural philosophers, but also other people, kind of campaigners. Um, so just to explain that what my book focuses on the kind of foundational technology of vaccination, which is called inoculation. And inoculation was used, was in use in Asia and Africa um, for I don't know how long, hundreds of years um, before the 18th century when this book is set. But um, it came to Europe through Turkey really. And it came primarily through um, the kind of advocacy and support of one woman who is called Lady Mary Wortley Montague, it's a fine name. And she was this extraordinary, extremely intelligent, very well-connected aristocrat. She went to Turkey to Constantinople with her husband who was the British ambassador there. And while she was there, she witnessed smallpox parties, inoculation parties where old women would take what she described as a blunt needle. And then they'd have someone who'd had smallpox and had the kind of pustules on their body. Uh, and they would um, take children who were perfectly healthy, take the blunt needle, take a little bit of the, sorry, no nice way of saying this, the pus from the pustules, and then just dab it into the arm of the child. Um, and the children would have a mild case of smallpox. So they're given this live virus, mild case of smallpox, and then they would recover and have full immunity to the disease for life. and. So that's a kind of fighting fire with fire. You're giving someone the disease in a mild way, they recover and then they're immune. And they didn't understand the process of immunity, but they knew it worked. They just saw it as giving the disease to somebody, but in a controlled way. And she had had smallpox herself, really suffered. Her brother had died of it. She came back to Britain and is like, right, this is incredible technology. We have to introduce it. And she convinced uh, the Princess of Wales, who had two princesses inoculated. And so you get this kind of elite of London taking on this technology. And she convinced the Royal Society, the big kind of scientific organisation, and they pursued it. And um, sort of medics around Britain did begin to start introducing it. And you get this kind of 
rolling process where in Britain it, it gradually became accepted over the sort of the next decades. And eventually in um, I think 1755, the Royal College of Physicians formally uh, accepted it uh, as a technology. And Britain was really very early in adopting that. And uh, I think just very pragmatic, this worked. You know, there was no cure for smallpox. One in five people who got it died. It was an absolutely hideous, horrendous disease that was particularly virulent by the 18th century. And people were terrified. Uh, yeah, they really were. I mean, in a kind of almost like it was, they called it the speckled monster, you know, and they, it, it, people were, parents were told not to count their children until they'd gone through smallpox. It was, you know, killed a lot of children in, in infancy. Um, you know, everybody got it. That was the thing. You know, you were, it was incredibly hard to avoid. As I say, extremely high death rates. Sometimes, you know, they're in the peaks of the epidemics, it kind of moved in these epidemic waves, waves around Europe. And in London, sometimes one in every seven or eight deaths in the whole of the, the capital would be from smallpox. You know, it was just everywhere. And of course, it's also, you know, it scarred people. It left them disfigured, pustules, you know, left these deep scars and sometimes also, you know, had other effects on the body. So it was there, visible. You know, it wasn't like... COVID where you can't see it, you know, you really knew if people had had smallpox. So it was ever present in the kind of popular imagination and, and in culture as well. So it's not just, just the kind of medical aspect. It was, it was, you couldn't, you know, couldn't escape it. So yeah, uh, so just to, to pick up again on, so inoculation is, is that fighting fire with fire process. And what Jenna did was to modify that, to recognize that people had begun to work out that you could actually use cowpox, really mild disease, and people would gain immunity to smallpox just as effectively. So that's a far safer process. You haven't got the risk that people who are inoculated could be infectious and actually give smallpox to other people. Um, and so he proved that using a mild disease to fight a really nasty one worked. And that's his enormous, important contribution. But he was modifying a, a, a process uh, that was, you know, had been going in, in Britain for 80 years before he published his work on vaccination. Okay, and science, is, you know, even today is like that. It's this slow, gradual buildup of many discoveries. And, you know, unfortunately, the way we like to understand things historically is we like there to be like a single cause or this one person figured it out. But, you know, as you know, that's not really how science works. No, I, absolutely. I mean, it works for a process of elimination, doesn't it? It's kind of, uh, this is <laughs> not true, you know, and therefore, uh, you know, this may be true. It's, it's a much slower, less dramatic, you know, it's just not all about these eureka moments. It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's lots of people handing on their bit of the puzzle to the next person. And that was a real kind of, not exactly a revelation, but the, it was very powerful to me when I looked at this. You know, it's actually really interesting. You can find all these treaties and, and kind of discussions that so many of them are online and available in archives of that these doctors and people were writing in the 18th century about smallpox and how to treat it. And they had these networks of knowledge that really were extraordinarily effective. You know, my Dr. Thomas Dinsdale, his work was read across Europe. It was translated into four different languages, went through various editions. It went off to the, to the United States or to, to America. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they really were, knowledge traveled really fast and people really did pick up on each other's ideas and they kind of you find them quoting each other you know credible networks it's it's and it was remarkable and you know each person contributing their their ideas and also people came they traveled to find out more so you have the london smallpox hospital at st pancras 
Um, and that became this kind of center of excellence uh, to which people from different countries came in order to find out how they were doing it. And then they went back to their countries and took their expertise with them. Now let's move over to Russia. Now, uh, you know, what can you tell us about, you know, Catherine the Great and her background before we get to this moment of inoculation with her? Um, just what's her background? What's her story? Well, Catherine the Great was a, uh, she wasn't Russian. That's the key fact. Um, she was German. She was a minor German princess um, born in a place called Stettin um, on the uh, sort of windy, slightly miserable Baltic shore. Um, and she had an extremely ambitious mother who uh, was uh, from the Holstein family. She was better connected um, than maybe her father. Um, and she was really looking for a kind of suitable match for her daughter. Um, and so she was related to the Empress of Russia, Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth had no children, so her heir was um, her nephew, um, who was Peter, was to become Peter III of Russia. Um, and she uh, was looking for a suitable wife for him. And so in the end, Catherine was betrothed to him and she traveled to Russia with her mother at, at 14 and, and converted to orthodoxy from Lutheranism mm -hmm. and married him very young. Um, they, it was a very kind of difficult, complicated relationship. He was, uh, he'd had a really difficult upbringing, um, lots of parade grounds and kind of, he liked to play soldiers even as an adult. He seemed to have terrible problems kind of forging relationships with people. He certainly didn't really get on with Catherine after that kind of initial period. Um, he was quite violent and very difficult to deal with. And she spent her time while they were kind of almost waiting to inherit the throne, or he was, um, reading a lot of political philosophy, informing herself um, and developing her ideas, uh, whereas he really didn't. <laughs> um, and eventually in 1762, um, Elizabeth died and Peter became emperor, um, but was really quite unstable. He, uh, he kind of had liberalizing tendencies, but he just was such an erratic character. He was a difficult person to have on the throne. And uh, he also, he had a, a, a lover and he was, there was even talk of him putting Catherine in a monastery or a, I'm sorry, in a nunnery and, uh, you know, kind of marginalizing her, mm -hmm. at which point, at which point backed up by the army, she launched a coup against her own husband uh, in 1762 and ousted him. So she comes to power through, the, through a coup. And then I think about six days later, uh, he was murdered by his guards. And no one knows what she knew of that. Um, and I think the sort of consensus is that she didn't kind of order that, but that it's clearly in her interest in a sense, you know, once he's gone, it's a clearer path to power. So she's empress and, but you know, she's a usurper. She has to establish herself extremely quickly. So she has a very quick, elaborate coronation in Moscow, very sort of uh, um, strong, powerful imagery of uh, the Orthodox Christian ceremony. Um, and then she sets about establishing herself with a program of reform really quite quickly. And, and she's extremely keen to, present Russia not as a, a sort of dark, dangerous backwater, but as a Western-facing progressive country. She wants to do that. She understands Russia. She has frustrations with it. She's 
frustrated and we see this with smallpox with the kind of superstitions of people but she's determined to kind of convince Russians that they're European and to convince outsiders that Russia is this progressive state and that she is a progressive forward-looking enlightened leader leading it. Now, Russia, Russia kind of always had a, a view of themselves at, at the time maybe still somewhat today of, of an outsider looking in toward towards Europe did they did they how did they take the Catherine the Great being a you know German-born person did they did they look at her as a, a as a foreigner as an outsider I think that there was wariness of her initially but that she she moved very fast to establish herself she published um uh, a document called the Nakaz, um, or the kind of great instruction, uh, where she set out her views um, really on uh, on politics, on, on how the country should be governed, on kind of how um, a code of laws, what, what, what should underpin a code of laws. And she began it by saying, Russia is a European state. That is the opening of this document. And I think that that's her kind of you know that's her saying what she wants it to be she's she's defining Russia as she hopes it will will be rather than as it necessarily was Russia is it's it's a big country a huge huge empire and it's you know as today very difficult to define people are still arguing I lived in Russia and one of the first things that we discussed in a Russian lesson where you know we were at the most basic level initially we were we were asked do you think Russia is a European country that same question that was in you know 2010 um and I think that that tension is absolutely inherent really to discussions of Russia um so was she how did they take to Ivy I think there were suspicions of her but she she moved quickly she was very authoritative she brought her ideas with her she began reforming began reforming health education um and there were there are, it's interesting actually when you read the accounts of ambassadors I read sort of the British ambassadors accounts of her and you get these perceptions of her and there's definitely this kind of real skepticism you know who is this woman and she's an usurper and how stable is she going to be on the throne and Russia's unpredictable and then but by the time of the story I tell in 1768 she's I'd say she's really solidified herself and the ambassadors are saying you know she is this is stable now she's here to stay um and she was projecting this notion of herself as the kind of little mother of the Matushka, little mother of the Russian people, um, and that she was there to look after them, to protect them, and to, you know, to project Russia abroad and to tell the Russians, you know, you are European within. So she had these kind of differing messages depending on who she was speaking to. Hey, fellow history nerds, it's your host, Kevin. I hope everyone's having a great start to the summer season. I'm on the road today. I'm headed to one of our public libraries here in Ohio. I'm going to give a history talk. Uh, I haven't given a public talk since before COVID, so I'm feeling a little bit rusty. But uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into it again. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about some ways that you can uh, support the podcast if you're enjoying it. Uh, the first one is that we have a Patreon page where uh, you can help support some of the costs of the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. And in exchange, you get some really cool perks. Uh, you get to listen to episodes uh, before anyone else. Uh, 
early edition episodes come out about a week before they drop to the general public. You can also get access to some bonus material. Um, for example, right now there's some bonus Q&A with Lucy Ward up on the show's Patreon. And then you also get to submit your own listener questions. Uh, I let you know in advance who I'm going to be talking to, and if you have a question you'd like me to ask, uh, patrons can always feel free to put that in the comments. And then another great way to support the podcast that's absolutely free is to like and subscribe it on whatever you're listening to, and then, you know, leave a review. Those are super helpful in for new people who are thinking about checking out the podcast. And then lastly, uh, I'm on social media, pretty much all of them, I think. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of them are at CMTU History. Uh, go ahead and follow me. Say hello. I'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about the show. All right. Thanks for listening. Back to our conversation with Lucy Ward. Now, how did she become aware of uh, Thomas Dimsdale and his work? Well, she, so 1768, she'd spent, there were, there were epidemic, epidemics of smallpox kind of sweeping around in, and coming into St. Petersburg and threatening her, her own palace. You know, the, the thing with smallpox is not a disease of poverty. This can attack anybody at any time. And she had moved out um, some of the time with her son to palaces outside St. Petersburg to escape the disease. She was very frightened of it and she hadn't had it. So quite unusual. And she didn't like that fact. I mean, that's very bad politically, you know, to be outside of the seat of power. There can be plotting. She was well aware of that, of course. And also, I think she just felt dishonorable. You know, she was kind of escaping. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she was and determined that she, she needed to do something about this threat of smallpox. And she already knew actually about inoculation. She'd come across it a few years previously um, and had suggested having her son inoculated. Her advisors had told her, no, you're not gonna do it. So she, she still had this idea. And this time they said, yes, go ahead. So she, she um, sent a message to her ambassador in London and said, find me the kind of top inoculating, you know, Britain's a center of excellence, find me the top guy. So the ambassador asked his networks and he, he approached a, a quite famous um, Quaker doctor in London called John Fothergill, who he knew, a very well-connected doctor. And John Fothergill knew Thomas Dimsdale as this kind of uh, very experienced inoculator and a fellow Quaker or Quaker born. Uh, and uh, so the ambassador met Thomas, said to him, look, we've got this project for you in Russia. Didn't really say it was to inoculate the empress. And Thomas Dimsdale said, well, you know, I've got this big family. I'm 56. I've kind of got enough money. I don't really need to go all the way to St. Petersburg. So then Russians send the message back to Catherine. And then this another messenger gallops all the way back from St. Petersburg back to London and says, tell him it's to inoculate the empress. And they tell him and he sort of realizes it's his duty to accept. So he kind of goes, OK. And then, <laughs> you know, within 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 a week or so, you can't he's say <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wasn't, it's not really a request, um, more of an order. Uh, no, and he, you know, so with his son, who was a medical student, he gets in a carriage and he's very impressed by the carriage. It's quite endearing. He's impressed because the seats fold back so you can sleep in it and it's really fast. It's, it's a very, <laughs> very no, <laughs> no, they're really, no, it's true. Very grand carriage. And he, um, and within a month he was arriving in St. Petersburg and he's put up in this grand apartment next to the Winter Palace. And he's told there's this hospital on the edges of the city across the Neva River. It's called Wolf House. And this is gonna be your base for inoculation. And you can, 
you know, you can run that hospital and you're here to inoculate the Empress. Was he this does, controversial uh, action for Catherine to take? Um, it was kept secret. She, she was really keen to inoculate her son. She was particularly scared of him getting smallpox and dying, partly obviously as a mother, but because her legitimacy derived from him and she wanted to protect him. She recognized that she needed to be inoculated herself first. Otherwise, if something went wrong with him, she'd be perceived to have poisoned him or whatever. And I suspect, you know, she wanted to protect herself too. Um, and so she, she was firm in her plan, very firm, but she wanted to keep it secret. So she publicized the fact that her son was gonna be inoculated, but not herself. She kept that quiet. So when Thomas Dimsdale met her, which he did very quickly, after, very soon after arriving, you know, he knew that this all had to be in secret. So he, and he got to know her very quickly and was absolutely overwhelmed on this meeting with her. He found her incredibly impressive, very, very well informed about the science, about inoculation. She, she really, you know, she'd done her research and she was very intelligent and very uh, quick and also very charismatic and impressive. And he writes letters home to his friend Henry in London, uh, which luckily the family also still have kind of describing meeting her and how, you know, overwhelmed he was um, by her. And they, they had this really remarkable relationship of mutual respect and just real actual friendship. And I think she, she saw him as someone very trustworthy. He hadn't asked for a specific fee for this. He wasn't greedy in her eyes. Lots of people obviously would have been. Um, she trusted him as a scientist. She, she believed in his skills. She didn't like a lot of doctors. She thought they were charlatans, but she definitely believed in him. And they had this mutual respect. He saw her as this extraordinary charismatic woman with this great understanding of this, his favorite subject, inoculation, you know. And they got on and she kind of welcomed him into the Winter Palace and they spent a lot of time together. He, he dined with her, you know, he spent a lot of time with her son. Um, so it was far more than just this professional doctor-patient relationship. He was kind of a guest in her palace, really. Um, and he so he then says to her, well, look, I, I, I need to, conduct some trials I'm really concerned that you know in case this virus is different here and and she's kind of well actually I just think you could get on with it but okay if it'll put your mind at rest <laughs> and so he 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 kind of rounds up some little cadets and like young soldiers mm. and does some inoculation trials on them and they're about 14 years old and they go really badly and it, he doesn't really know why and Russia was sort of didn't seem people didn't even necessarily know whether they'd had smallpox or not and so he, he doesn't know whether people are just immune and that's why his methods aren't working so he gets incredibly anxious and there's this kind of long period where he keeps trialing things and it's not working it's all quite thrilling really and and in the end she just says she calls him to her and says my life is my own you know I look she says to him I've kind of looked at the data and you know, one in five people die with smallpox, who, who get smallpox, and or actually probably even more in Russia. Um, it was particularly virulent there, I think. And then, you know, inoculation, he had inoculated 6,000 people and they're just one death. So that's an extraordinary, you know, success rate. Yeah. And she, so she's this kind of, she's really about the numbers and she was able to kind of evaluate risk in the way that we know human beings are really not very good at she could kind of remove the psychology and just at least say to him, you know, I trust you. And she said, yeah, my life is my own. Just get on with it. And then she sends him this message. And so and at nine o'clock at night, he sets out from Wolf House in a carriage with a child who has smallpox that he's inoculated so that he can inoculate her from this, this child. 
it's called Sasha Alexander. And he, he goes by carriage to the back staircase secretly of the Winter Palace and he's ushered up this back staircase and into her room. And he takes out this scalpel and a lancet that the family still have. And he inoculates the Empress of Russia in two arms, in each arm. And there's no going back from that. The family still has those. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, they, 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 a lot of stuff got handed down. It's, yeah. it is, I mean, there's even, there's, she gave him many gifts afterwards, and the family has quite a few of those, um, and even clothing belonging to her grandchildren. Um, so there's, there's actual, some really strong connections. It's not even just documents, um, portraits, um, diamond encrusted snuff boxes. I'm sure if there's travel- any, uh, <laughs> Museum curators listening to this, they're salivating right now. <laughs> yeah. but some, some of it's in the Hermitage Museum. There's, there's some bits because the family have kind of, you know, some of it's been passed on. But yeah, no, it's extraordinary collection. So after having researched this, uh, what are your takeaways on Catherine's leadership? I think, well, what, what's interesting is that, I mean, it's not a great giveaway to say that she does recover from this really quite frightening procedure. I mean, he, you know, in the book, uh, well, sort of shares his his medical notes, and you find out how she actually experienced this, you know, still risky procedure, and how how she recovered. And then her son is also inoculated. And then, so she was out of St. Petersburg while she recuperated, and then she comes back into the city with like bells ringing and cannon fire and kind of illuminated buildings, and this enormous kind of party and celebration. And then she she orders, she orders that there will be church bells rung across across the empire, and she celebrates in the most extraordinary way. She, so she has a big Orthodox mass um, celebrating her inoculation and the friendship between Britain and Russia. Um, she uh, has a ballet commissioned that's on the theme of kind of the overcoming of prejudice uh, with herself as Minerva. Um, she, uh, she had a, a play written poetry. Um, uh, she even had uh, medals cast with, a, uh, again, a kind of idealized picture of, of her as Minerva. And, and, and the, um, this statement on the back said, um, she herself set an example. So she's absolutely kind of trying to, you know, convey to her country that she has done this. She has gone through this risk. She's she's gone through this procedure, and they should too. So she's using her own experience as a leader to, um, you know, promote this scientific procedure to her country, knowing that people are really superstitious. They are really scared about it, and and that she's gone there and kind of done this for them and led the way, and they they are to follow. And um, and so she's kind of an influencer, you know, she's really, really good at image making and at projecting. And she she sort of refers to herself in a almost like, a, as a, again, as this little mother of the Russian people. She talks about herself as a kind of shepherd with her sheep. It's this kind of Christ-like analogies, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in that that understanding of the, the need to lead by example, especially in something which is about... The body and the fear that we all know about now you know people's concerns over over vaccination um you know she understood that she could say i've done this i wouldn't tell you to do anything i wouldn't do she has a very interesting conversation you mentioned leadership with thomas dimsdale in the garden at the palace where she's recovering and they're walking around while she's she's feeling a lot better and and they see some peasants there in the 
in the grounds and she says I am an autocrat I could make anybody do anything I could like just issue orders and people would have to be inoculated but I I don't do that because I believe in persuasion and I think it's a better way to get people to do what I want so this is a woman who literally is you know she could make anyone do anything but she's deciding not to deliberately and in fact she's she's even bribed she says oh I, I actually I give these people money to be inoculated so she's bribing them <laughs> and she said that and they've she gave them one ruble and now they're asking for two so she knows that they're kind of they're they're playing with her really but she's willing to do that to not use the power that she has and I think it's quite an interesting you know that's interesting in in the context of compulsion and those discussions now I think that that this that she didn't do that but bear in mind this is very early in her reign and like all like absolutely all rulers you know she became far more kind of you know despotic and controlling towards the end of her reign but you know we're seeing her really quite early on right so it's fascinating yeah well uh lucy this has been uh a wonderful conversation i i really love this topic like i said the intersection between science and history uh you know i totally geek out over that um <laughs> If anyone else is geeking out over this and they want to pick up a copy of your book uh, or learn more about you and your work, uh, where can they go? Well, the book is out uh, in the U.S. on the 7th of June. Um, and uh, I have a website, which I'm literally just about to launch. Um, so they'll be able to find that. It's just search under my name and hopefully that will that will pop up and they can find out a little bit more about me and about the book. All right. Well, Lucy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey, gang. Thanks for listening to another episode of Can't Make This Up. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lucy Ward. Uh, if you would like to uh, pick up a copy of her book, The Empress and the English Doctor, uh, you will find a link to it down in the description of this episode in your podcast app, wherever you're listening. And then I hope you'll stick around for a while. Uh, in a week or two, the next episode will be out. I'm talking with Sarah Scholes, uh, who's written an interesting history on UFO culture and the UFO movement. Uh, pretty interesting and timely uh, in light of recent congressional hearings on the topic. And then just after that, I'll be talking with returning guest Dean Job, who has a book on the trail of a Victorian-era serial killer. So some good stuff this summer. I'll see you again next time.